0: Okay, hello, welcome, I've never been here before, Uh, nice building, so Joe has asked me to talk about uh, ISIS, so I thought I'd take you on a little journey and then we can have some question and answer, I'm sure there are things that you are curious about, uh, given that you know, the role of the news media basically is to terrify you and to exaggerate certain things and also not really give you other things. In other words, they exaggerate the things that are made for sensationalism, beheading, and what they don't give you is context. They don't explain what's going on. And I, I often find the most terrifying thing for me is when I don't understand or have a context for something. You know, for instance, my favorite topic of the day is Ebola, of course. And yesterday I, I was telling you I spent four hours basically in quarantine because I have a cough. And I might have Ebola. You know, (laughs) you never know. But the thing is, they don't give you context for it either. So there are people who are terrified that they'll catch Ebola, you know. Uh, They don't have a context because there's a context for how these diseases spread. They don't just spread randomly. You know, there's a logic. Uh, And if you fed people or gave people a sense of the full context, then they'll better understand what's going on. You know, ISIS did not appear uh, a few weeks ago. ISIS is not a surprise to people who follow things in the Middle East. You know, no movement of this kind, which is able to destroy the boundaries between two countries, that is Iraq and Syria, no movement of this kind can just emerge overnight. It takes a certain process for these things to happen. Well, there are two contexts that the government has given us, and to some extent the news media, and neither of them are useful. One context is, of course, that this is a big problem in the Middle East between the Shias and the Sunnis, that this is an old conflict that goes back to the 7th century, and that, you know, in a sense, Muslims have been having this uh, fight amongst each other uh, since the 7th century. That's an erroneous context, despite the fact that it was really the main part of the discussion from uh, President Obama, in the speech he gave, I think on 10th September of this year, where he basically made the narrative of the rise of ISIS be about a, dis- a dispute within the world of Islam. Uh, I'll show you that that's not actually a useful, uh, st- you know, it's not a useful narrative, it's not a useful contextual framework. The other context that has been put forward uh, for the rise of ISIS is that, you know, somehow this is all about the people who funded it you know, the Saudis and Qataris and others, that this would not have appeared without Saudi and Qatari funding. So that's the second thing, that somehow these people were waiting for uh, the ability or the opportunity to do what they're doing, and then this Gulf money came in and they went crazy. Uh, Neither of these are actually useful. They are very useful for the United States and British government uh, because they enable both these governments to say that the rise of ISIS had nothing to do with the war in Iraq from 2003. In fact, right after the, the group Islamic State took the city of Mosul in northern Iraq, right after this happened, uh, Tony Blair, you know, the great, uh, who used to be called the poodle of George W. Bush, Tony Blair very quickly came out and said uh, that this has nothing to do with the war in Iraq. And, you know, it's one of those, like say, a child when there's a sound of, a, of a, something smashing and you hear a voice from the room yelling, I didn't do it, you know. Nobody accused Tony Blair of creating ISIS, yet immediately he said it has nothing to do with the war in Iraq. That's a good indication that it has something to do with the war in Iraq. The first thing I should tell you is that Iraq and Syria are countries that don't incubate extremist ideologies of the kind that you see now from the Islamic State. This is not a normal uh, form of, of uh, either Islam or even of a social movement that uh, Iraq and Syria have produced, you know, over the course of several hundred years. Iraq is an incredibly diverse society. Uh, there are In the region of northern Iraq, where ISIS is growing, there are all kinds of very interesting communities. I mean, you can travel to valleys where you will walk into a village, and it's a village of Chaldeans, you know. I mean, I don't know how many of you read the old Bible, But, you know, the Chaldeans are from the old Bible, and they are a living community in northern Iraq. I mean, there are ancient communities. The one that you now know about is, of course, the Yazidis, uh, the community that was under threat in Jabal Sinjar. And the Yazidis, like um, the Chaldeans, form these small pockets of minorities in northern Iraq. I mean, northern Iraq, and to some extent... Uh, north-central Syria are filled with these small minority communities, including the mountain regions of Syria. This is not hospitable terrain, in other words, for the kind of ideology that emerges with ISIS. You may not remember this, uh, and why should you remember it? And I hope when you were younger, your parents didn't burden you with this too much. But in 2002, after 9-11, um, the Bush administration, that, mean, that is George W. Bush, was very eager to go to war in Iraq, very eager for this war in Iraq. His father had initially prosecuted a war in 1991, uh, and that war resulted in a sanctions uh, regime which lasted from 1991 to 2003. But George W. Bush was very eager in 2002, and so was his team. Donald Rumsfeld, his ministry, uh, minister of defense, and his vice president, his vice president, whose middle name is Baltimore, Dick Waldemar Cheney, was eager in his biological hazard suit to send American troops to go fight in a war, which, of course, he had never fought in any war. You know, he was a guy, lucky for him, uh, when he was asked during the Vietnam era to go fight in Vietnam, uh, his line was, I have other priorities. Well, it's good for you that you have other priorities, but lots of young kids had to go and die in these wars that people like you prosecute. So he was very eager for a war in Iraq, and they needed to link somehow, Iraq to the war on terror. And they used two strategies to do that. One, they argued that somehow, um, despite over a decade of sanctions against Iraq, and therefore the inability of Iraq to import uh, chemicals and and electronic technology somehow uh, in this period Iraq had incubated or created a chemical weapons industry and weapons of mass destruction. So that was the first reason to go to war: is that there were weapons of mass destruction. The second causes, belay, or cause of war, was to be the connection between Saddam Hussein and Al Qaeda. Ah, uh, this is by the way. There's a place to sit here. Uh, You can sit on this as well if you'd like. I mean, it's a remarkable fantasy to believe that Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein had anything to do with each other. If Saddam Hussein was a secular uh, nationalist who hated Al-Qaeda, and Al-Qaeda hated people like Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein in the world of Al-Qaeda was considered the near enemy. The far enemy was the United States. The near enemy was Saddam Hussein, Hosni Mubarak, the king of Arabia, the emirs of the Gulf. This were, these were the targets of al-Qaeda as much as the far enemy, which was the United States. Anyway, through torture, this guy, a Libyan uh, al-Qaeda man through torture, said that, yes, you know, uh, one of the uh, terrorists in 9-11 met uh, an Iraqi official in, in Czechoslovakia, in Prague. This whole thing turned out to be a fantasy, because he had said this under torture. It was not true. At any rate... The, the weapons of mass destruction argument and the Al-Qaeda argument was sufficient for the United States to somehow not convince the UN uh, Security Council, because Colin Powell was unable to actually get a uh, affirming vote from the Security Council, the United States goes to war against Iraq. Uh, this is a huge, huge war of aggression. And a war of aggression is a technical term. That means that you go to war against a country despite the fact you have no reason to go to war against them. You know, in international law, this is essentially a war crime. So the United States goes to war against Iraq in 2003, and the Iraqi army disappears. Now, I remember watching this and thinking, this is amazing. The army has disappeared. Uh, You know, Iraq may not be, no country in the world can face American bombers. American bombers can bomb everybody to submission there's no way you can with a kalashnikov ak47 hit an american bomber there's no way it's way out of your range even with the rpg you can't hit um, an american bomber which is hovering at maybe 20000 feet let loose you know or an american battleship that fires hellfire missiles you know sitting far away in, in the in the you know uh, uh, indian ocean or in the persian gulf there's no way you can hit them but as american troops move north from the town of Basra towards Baghdad, there was no resistance, virtually no resistance. It was amazing. The Iraqi army disappeared. So America took Iraq with no problem. And that's when you had George W. Bush on the um, uh, the you know aircraft carrier off the coast of San Diego, standing there in a flight jacket with a sign behind him which said, mission accomplished. Well, not really, because the problem was just going to begin. What was the problem? The problem was, once they came in, there was no al-Qaeda, there were no weapons of mass destruction. It was greatly frustrating to the administration that they couldn't prove the two reasons uh, for which they had gone to war. Meanwhile, there was chaos, because the first two decrees that the U.S. government uh, passed when it uh, essentially occupied Iraq for order number one and order number two, and these were catastrophic. So if you ever get to a position of authority, just keep this particular thing in mind. I would like you, if you learn one thing today, don't pass order number one and order number two. Order number one and two were the following: The entire Iraqi military was disbanded. Everybody was fired. It's a bad idea to fire the whole military for reasons I'll come to in a minute. The second thing the American government did was it said anybody with a Ba'ath Party card, any member of the ruling Ba'ath Party cannot hold any government office any longer. So you've now occupied a country, can't find a reason for your occupying the country, no weapons of mass destruction, no al-Qaeda, but you've disbanded the military, the most sophisticated fighting force that's available in the society is now without a job, And you've said all capable people cannot be hired anymore. That's a big mistake. You're going to create reservoirs of discontent that are going to fester. In the chaos that ensued after the United States overthrew the regime of Saddam Hussein, arrived a small cell from Jordan. There was an al-Qaeda terrorist by the name of Abu Musab al zarqawi and he will set up shop in the town of Talafar, which is again... A very diverse town, largely Turkmen, very diverse town. He sets up shop in Tal Afar, and he creates al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia. There's never been an al-Qaeda in Iraq until 2004. You know, there's never been a tradition of al-Qaeda-like activity. There's never been mosques that promote al-Qaeda-like ideology. This is brand new. He brings it from outside. So al-Zarqawi creates this group in 2004. And he starts to go after, not the Americans, but after the majority Shia population in Iraq. I don't have time to go into this, but he begins a sectarian war. He begins a sectarian war that's so unpopular that Bin Laden writes to him and tells him to stop the sectarian war. That it's too much. It's too radical for Bin Laden. You know, I mean, this is what Zarqawi was. This group is smashed The Americans go and raise Ramadi, raise Fallujah, they kill Zarqawi. But you kill Zarqawi, you cannot kill the movement he has begun. Because what Al-Qaeda does inside Iraq now is very smart. It makes a tactical alliance with the very people that you don't want them to ally with, which is all those fired Iraqi military personnel. So whereas, for instance, before 9-11, in the mountains of Afghanistan or elsewhere in Sudan, you had groups like al-Qaeda, these al-Qaeda groups had no battlefield tactical experience. These were people who were very good at bomb making and then sending somebody with the bomb to try and explode it somewhere. That's what they were good at. They were good at small acts of terror. They didn't have the kind of battlefield tactical experience that's now going to come to al-Qaeda through the fired Iraqi military personnel. Some of these people will move to the ideology of al-Qaeda, but not all of them. Many of them will retain their Iraqi nationalist affiliations, but they'll work together. Now, in 2006, they recreate this group as the Islamic State of Iraq. You know, remember I said, this doesn't begin a few months ago. It has a history. It begins 10 years ago. In 2006, they created the Islamic State of Iraq. And at that time, they are confined to northern Iraq. Not very powerful, not able to move out of their redoubts in northern Iraq. Let's fast forward about six years. So they are constrained for six years. They're building up. Their alliances, they're building up their various uh, relationships with different groups. They, They draw in some foreign fighters, but they're constrained. In 2011, there is an uprising in Syria which very quickly becomes an armed uprising. I was recently in Lebanon, in Beirut, where I um, interviewed a, a Syrian businessman from Damascus who in early 2011, in March, began to finance the armed phase of the rebellion. And he wrote to the UN in, I think, between somewhere between July, August and September, in that part of the year of 2011, he wrote to the UN and said, Please somehow stop Gulf Arab money from coming in here. We, Syrian businessmen, will finance our own insurrection. We don't need that money. Of course, Kofi Annan, nobody replied to him. Kofi Annan was then the UN envoy for the Syrian civil war that had begun. Uh, Nobody replied to him. Gulf Arab money came in, and you had the emergence in Syria now of various Gulf Arab proxies that began to suffocate that uprising. That's in Syria. In January 2012 while these Gulf Arab groups were growing in Syria, our friends, the Islamic State of Iraq, decided to set up their affiliate in Syria, which they called the support group. And that's the uh, group called Jabhat al-Musra. The support group was set up inside Syria. And fighters went from Iraq to basically train people in battle. And it's actually was interesting for the Islamic State of Iraq, because whereas they had been confined, now they had space to test some of their strategies, test their battlefield experience. Mm -hmm. Jabhat al-Nusra, by uh, mid-2011, had actually become one of the major rebel forces inside uh, Syria, and in fact became the official al-Qaeda group inside Syria. I'm going to come back to them a fair amount. They're, They're a very interesting group. And meanwhile, the leader of uh, uh, of Jabhat al-Nusra, Julani, had a disagreement with the leader of the Islamic State of Iraq, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Al-Baghdadi basically now decided that, listen, why should there be a border between Iraq and Syria? These are meaningless colonial borders. They've been created by the Sykes-Picot Agreement, you know, after World War One. This country of Iraq doesn't exist because it was a creation of the British. We are going to create, you know, the Islamic State. So he announced in early 2013, late 2012, early 2013, the creation of the Islamic State of Iraq and Al Sham or, uh, or of Syria. It was called ISIS. Why Obama likes to call it ISIL is a bizarre thing because he's using an old name for the, the coastline of West Asia, the Levant. You know, so he calls the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, but really it's Greater Syria. And uh, al said there are no boundaries. We are one country. And what happens is that ISIS then starts to get, they, they start a, a battle against Jabhat al nusra other groups inside uh, Syria. Other groups that are funded by Gulf Arab countries like Jaisal Islam, etc. Lots of Gulf Arab money comes in. Uh, fighters come in through Turkey. You know, the Turkish government essentially becomes like a travel agent for these jihadis coming in plane loads from Libya, uh, from Chechnya, from Philippines, escorted across the border. You know, you've seen pictures of John McCain standing there with the fighters yelling, you know, Takbir! (laughs) And John McCain there is yeah, revolution! Of course, all these guys are coming from God knows where all uh, to cross the border into Syria. And in Syria, the Islamic State of Iraq, which has now expanded its uh, ambitions, gains not only uh, battlefield experience, but they are also able to, as I said, test their battlefield training, their strategic training. It becomes a uh, a place where they are able to, therefore, fight set-piece battles. And they take the city of Raqqa. In July of 2013, it's a major city in northern Syria, seized by the Islamic State. And then in December of 2013, they take the cities of Ramadi and Fallujah. Now, long before the American public started getting excited, this movement was holding the city of Raqqa in northern Syria, and Ramadi and Fallujah and Deir on the border of Syria and Iraq. I mean, they were already controlling a huge swath of territory. You know, there was no concern. Of any kind. In fact, the United States' main NATO ally, Turkey, was allowing fighters to go across and allowing people from the Islamic State to cross back into Turkey to be treated in Turkish hospitals. On Sunday, a colleague of mine, uh, you know, was killed in Turkey. A very suspicious death on Friday, she was on, uh, on television saying that Turkish intelligence is threatening me because she had been reporting about how Islamic State fighters continue to be uh, treated in Urfa, in the hospitals. And then mysteriously on Sunday, uh, her car was hit by a cement truck and she was obliterated. Uh, she was uh, 30, uh, born in 1984 and we are in 2014, she's 30 years old. Very young reporter, killed. On Sunday, as two days ago. This is a very sensitive story, this Turkish help for the ISIS fighters. But, you know, it was in plain sight uh, right through 2013 that Turkey was allowing fighters to come back and forth. Qatari charities at the border were providing logistical support uh, and, of course, American special forces were engaged in Eastern Jordan to train fighters, some of them most likely who ended up joining the Islamic State. Why? Because the principal objective was to get rid of Bashar al-Assad in Damascus, the government of Damascus. That was the principal objective. Everything else was irrelevant. I'm going to pause here. I'm going to come back to the story in a minute. I'm going to pause here to say that, you know, I work half my time as a journalist, and I've covered this war since the beginning. I used to also write about Afghanistan and the parallels between this, what's happening here, and what happened in Afghanistan after 1978 are extraordinary. You know, the United States learned zero lessons from the utilization of very, very extreme jihadi elements uh, funded by the Saudis against the um, Soviet-backed government in Afghanistan, that experience had enormous blowback. It produced, after all, Osama bin Laden. And this is an entirely, like, almost out of a rule book, you know, complete copy of how the U.S. developed policy in Afghanistan. Again, uh, Haven is created, again, there is a greater evil. There, the greater evil is the Soviet-backed government in Kabul, the government of Najibullah. This is the government of Bashar al-Assad. The greater evil, what the U.S. decides the greater evil, trumps logic. And so you allow the Saudis, Qataris, etc., to finance organizations that are, you know, repellent and that are fighting a very dirty war. I'm going to come back to this dirty war in a minute. But anyway, back to the story. So by 2013, large parts of territory were in the hands of ISIS. And then what happens is that, spectacularly, um, the ISIS group makes a dash for Mosul and captures it, you know, in a heartbeat. Now, I don't have time to go into how they took Mosul. It's an interesting story. They take the city of Mosul in northern Iraq like this. And even this would have been forgiven them, because they were forgiven the taking of Ramadi, taking of Fallujah, taking of Raqqa. You know, Raqqa, in the city of Raqqa, a sophisticated 21st century city... ISIS put up banners saying children should not be allowed to wear diapers, you know. I mean, crazy ideas, you know. They, just like the Taliban, they had some off-the-wall ideas. Why no diapers? Because it's unhygienic to have excreta. I mean, it's an anti-woman thing to say no diapers. That means you have to keep running after kids, changing their... You know, nappies provide certain freedom. So crazy ideas, you know, they put in a sophisticated city, turning the population, not against them, but to fear. Uh, And we can talk about that, how they introduced fear. But they took Mosul, and that was forgiven. But then they made a strategic mistake. They made a push for Erbil. Uh, Erbil is the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan. And Erbil is the city which is the center of oil production and oil processing in northern Iraq. And it's a major U.S. ally. The moment they went towards Erbil, the United States air power came in and bombed um, the forward motion of the ISIS advance. And it's at that point that ISIS, in retaliation, beheaded James Foley. You know, James Foley was a graduate of University of Massachusetts, so he has a connection to this area. His beheading was a direct reaction to the bombing campaign. If ISIS had not gone towards Mosul, there may not have been bombing. I mean, I want you to realize how cynical all this is. This was not a big humanitarian thing, you know. They had already taken Raqqa. They had already taken Ramadi, Fallujah. They they were being financed openly. They were allowed to come and use Turkish hospitals openly. But it was the move to the oil-rich Iraqi Kurdistan that irked uh, U.S. policy and brought it into action and bombed the forward motion of ISIS and halted it. And then they retaliate with the beheading of Foley. They retaliate with the beheading of Foley. But over the last year and a half, The ISIS has been doing some pretty nasty stuff. Like, for instance, when they took Mosul, they killed about 150 Iraqi soldiers on video. You know, just dug a trench and just killed them. And that somehow didn't bother anybody. You know, I mean, I didn't see any world leaders say, this is an outrageous atrocity, nothing. It took the killing of James Foley to galvanize people. And I want us to recognize that this is not really the best a way for countries like the United States to appear before the world. That when an American is killed, all hell is going to break loose. When 150 Iraqis are killed in you know daylight like this, well, that's just the kind of thing they do to each other. When almost 75 Iraqi uh, Syrian soldiers were captured at the Tabqa airbase and forced march naked into the desert and shot, again in video, that brought no discussion. You know, It raises this question of whose life is considered important enough to get outraged about. Um, you know, James Foley was a good journalist. He was beheaded. Yesterday, I mean, on, on Sunday, uh, a Lebanese journalist was killed in Turkey. There will be no noise about that. Do you understand? It's a very important thing. sends a terrible message around the world that there is a double standard in outrage. You know, why should the whole world put up Facebook things saying, we are with you, James Foley, never forget James Foley. Do you even remember the name of the Iraqi cameraman who was beheaded by, uh, by ISIS last month? Anybody? There were two Iraqi journalists beheaded last month. One about two, three weeks ago. Nobody even, it was not even reported in American media. Now, why should the American media care about an Iraqi cameraman? I agree. But the impulse is that the world has to care about James Foley. And that we don't have to care about the Iraqi cameraman. Do you understand? That's the problem here in terms of messaging. Anyway, ISIS then, when stopped at uh, Raqqa, at at, uh, Erbil, the capital of Kurdistan, turns around and makes a dash for the city of Kobani. The city of Kobani is a Kurdish city. It has been under siege for four weeks. Um, uh, The United States is having a serious problem with Turkey because the Turks don't want the Kurds of Kobani to win. This is a complicated story. Inside Turkey, there's been a long-standing attempt by the Kurdish population to get some rights for themselves. So th- This is an internal and very contradictory situation. But, you know, it's a useful situation to spend a few minutes on because it's the Kobani story that tells you that the politics of the region are very complicated, that this kind of messianic language we, we use in our foreign policy, you know, we're coming to help, we're going to get ISIS, things like that. These are not helpful. It is not helpful, actually, to be so certain about what you're doing. The politics are so messy, your certainty actually makes a mockery of what you're able to do. You know, if you think about it, what has, been, what has the United States been able to do? It's been able to bomb places here and there. But it has no ground game. It has no ground game in Iraq or in Syria. One of the reasons it has no ground game is the politics are messy. And the U.S. government is simply not prepared to make a rational decision about the politics. And the rational decision would be to seriously quell the usage of these kind of fighters to go after the so-called greater enemy. That is just not going to be on the table. There will be no discussion about that. You know. I'm very interested, and I, I mentioned it in a class today earlier, how there's been a major cultural sense of disorientation in the United States. The two movies I saw recently that uh, led me to this, you know, one was um, the uh, movie Godzilla, and the other one was the movie uh, you know, X-Men. In both these movies, I was really interested in, in, in how the military was paralyzed. In Godzilla, the U.S. military cannot defeat those funny creatures that eat nuclear waste. It's Godzilla that has to come from the depths to defeat them. In an earlier time, there would have been no such need. The U.S. military would have triumphed. But here, the U.S. military was paralyzed. I don't know if you noticed that. If you saw the film. You didn't see the film. Nobody sees Godzilla. I'm the only one who flies on planes and is forced to watch movies. Like, anyway, that's, that's, that's what the plot is, okay? The military can't hit these weird creatures. Godzilla has to come to save the United States military. The second film was the, what's that movie called? Uh, I said it already, X-Men, where you can't fight today. It's impossible. So I find this even more interesting film. So that one of the X-Men has to go back to the past, to change the past in order to save the present. I think this is a very profound story because indeed this is what I'm saying to you is that there is a need to go back to the past to save the present. You know, what was the original sin? In that film it was the killing of the scientist by uh, whatever her name is who turns blue. Uh, She kills the scientist and that has to be stopped because that actually isn't enough to change the destiny of the planet. I mean, there are moments when you have to wonder about a certain cynicism in foreign policy, where there's this belief that you can create a monster and you can control a monster. And despite hundreds of examples where the monster goes out of control, you know whether it be, uh, as I said, al-Qaeda in the original instance of ISIS now, there remains this incredible belief that you can somehow create a proxy that is going to do your dirty work and will continue to be able to be reined in. You know, you cannot rein this group in anymore. It cannot be reined in. Uh, one final thing, when I said these are dangerous people, yeah, sure, you get a beheading here, you get a beheading there. But in the scale of, um, you know, moral disrepair, I mean, you know, if you bomb a whole city and kill thousands of people or if you behead one person, uh, the scales balance out. Um, meaning, it's... Easy to demonize a group and say, this group is so bad. They, you know, as Joe Biden said, the gates of hell, they'll be arrested. You know, you can demonize this group as much as you want and say, because of the one beheading. You can't defeat a group by demonizing it. You have to be able to peel people away from the ideology of the group. And it's harder to do that if you're just going to bomb them. I don't actually think that the United States or its allies have a strategy to vanquish uh, the ISIS. And I, the reason I say that with full confidence is that ISIS is a product of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was a product of terrible, terrible, terrible strategy in Afghanistan. Over the course of 14 years, 13 years, the United States has spent billions, trillions of dollars. You know, Somebody called Iraq the $4 trillion war. Trillions of dollars spent in these wars. It hasn't actually increased security. It's, in fact, exacerbated security. There are more places in the world now that are threatening than they were at 9-11. So if you tell me we can defeat ISIS now, I've heard this story before. I've heard this so many times that it's exhausting. You cannot bomb these people into obliteration. You cannot bomb them uh, in, into nothingness. You have to somehow defeat them politically. And there is no narrative that the government offers to people to defeat them politically. Okay? Have questions, things like that? <coughs> ask questions, ask me. Oh, please. Ask me some questions, please.